Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. I'm going to pray for us, then we're going to talk about John and uh, why we're going through that book this week, and also give you a little picture of what RUF is. Father God, we need you to be with us when we open up the Bible because it's confusing and our hearts don't make it any easier because they're confusing too. Uh, We are trying to figure out life and we are trying to figure out you and we are trying to figure out how to live. And I pray, Father God, that you would convince our hearts that there is life and there is love in you. Uh, Teach us about who you are. Be with us, Father God. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Fourteen years ago, when actually the first day that I started working for RUF, not here, uh, a old guy named Bebo from Mississippi told me this, and anytime an old guy named Bebo from Mississippi says something, you should probably listen because it would be really, really wise or it would be really, really funny. And um, this falls in the former category. Bebo said this, said, you know, the heart is the main thing. And that's all he said. It's pretty profound, even though it sounds kind of simple. But uh, uh, Paige Benton, who's a Paige Brown, who's a good friend of mine, told this story about what it means that the heart is the main thing. Uh, she has a brother who's a doctor, and she tells this story when she was 31. For the better part of the previous decade of her life, she never went to a doctor. Whenever she needed something, she'd just call her brother and say, Hey, write a prescription for this. Can you write a prescription for this? Can you write a prescription for this? And after, she said after eight or nine years, her brother finally said, Listen, you need a real doctor. You need to get things like physicals. I'm not going to keep doing this for you. Um, so go to a doctor. This is over. So she did. And she went to an internist just to get a routine physical, age 31. Over the course of the exam... Took her pulse, got a little nervous, started listening to her heart, and the internist said, tell me about your heart. And Paige said, I don't know, it's there. And the doctor said, well, do you know anything about it? And Paige said, it seems to be working today like it has on all the other days. (laughs) This is a 31-year-old, fit, active lifestyle, healthy eating woman. And the doctor says, you have a problem, you need to see the cardiologist today. And Paige is like, I'm young, I'm healthy, I'm active, I feel fine. And the doctor says, you haven't listened to your heart, it's not good. So she actually goes to a cardiologist that day, it takes forever to get in because she hasn't uh, scheduled an appointment ahead of time. And she says, when she walks into a cardi- when you walk into a cardiologist's office, everybody looks unhealthy. Like it's all old people, like my brother, my uncles are cardiologists, and like you walk in there as a fit 31 year old, and you're like, I don't belong here. Y'all obviously need a cardiologist. I obviously don't, right? She's put together. They do EKGs, they put her on the treadmill, they send her home with a sl- to monitor her heart and her sleep and everything. Her resting heartbeat in the middle of the night is 150, uh, which if you know anything is insanely high. And the doctor told her, your heart's about to explode. This is saying, this is really a medical emergency. And she's thinking, I went to see an internist so I could get like flu medicine when I needed it. And there's like a little blip on my health radar, and now it's this full-blown medical emergency. And the doctor said, your heart, you've got to understand your heart may go at any moment. And Paige said she responded, her first words out of her mouth, and the doctor told us this is an emergency, is, but everything else is right. 
are not healthy in every other arena. And the doctor said, you don't get it. If your heart isn't healthy, there is no health. It doesn't matter how everything else is going if your heart is not healthy. So at age 31, she had heart surgery. She's fine now, um, has a bunch of kids. She's great. But the point is this. There is no health apart from your heart. If everything else is perfect, if you're taking care of business in life, at Stanford, in relationships, it doesn't matter if your heart is unhealthy. And what we're talking about is more than simply physically, right? Your biological heart, but the seat of who you are. That innermost you, right? And this is important for you to actually accept that truth regardless of where you are in your spiritual journey is because Stanford is this elite institution for educating you in computer science and engineering and public policy and English and human biology. It's, it's the best. You know that's why you came here. And the great lie that all of us are prone to believe is that if you are healthy in your academics, you're healthy in your physical life, and you're healthy in your social life, then you're healthy. There is no health apart from your heart. You can win at everything at Stanford and lose. And if you don't believe me, talk to the students who have been here for a couple of years. If you're a freshman, you interact with some upperclassmen because all of them already know, and if you're new here, you will soon know someone who doesn't come back. You'll come back in the winter quarter and someone won't be here. You will all know over the course of your college career someone who disappears in the middle of a quarter. And those people who disappear, you know how they will look up until that moment? Like they are killing it at Stanford. Everyone will say, you'll hear this refrain while you're at Stanford, I never knew he or she was struggling. Because we're healthy in every capacity on the outside, right? Y'all are making great grades. You're all fit. You're in the sun all the time, right? It's an amazing place. But there is no health if the heart is not healthy. And if you're healthy in all those other arenas, it's actually meaningless if you don't deal with your heart. And the tragic irony of Stanford is that if you win here, but your heart is empty, you'll die on the inside. You'll project a perfectly manicure outside to everyone else. But if you win here and your heart is empty, you will die on the inside. And if your heart is full, even if you fail at Stanford, you actually will have rich, secure, and actually what the Bible calls life everlasting. If you're at RUF and you don't know what to think and you're pretty sure you're not interested in Jesus and you're not even, you don't even know why you're here and you're like, I've never come back to this place. I didn't know they were going to talk about Jesus and read the Bible. That's okay. You don't have to come back. Here's what I would ask of you. Go through your college career asking yourself these two questions every morning. These questions are not distinctly Christian or biblical. It's okay. I'm not pushing anything on you. But go through your college career asking yourself these questions every day. Why is it true that there are people who are doing really well at Stanford and in the world, academically, socially, professionally, who are wildly depressed, full of anxiety, dying? Why is it that that class of people exists? 
You gotta ask yourself that question every day or you're irresponsibly at Stanford. The second question you have to ask yourself every single day is why is it that on this globe right now, this other group of people exists? There are some people who are poor, who will never achieve anything and have barely any education and will be happy. You are not responsibly attending Stanford University and participating in this culture if you don't deal with the fact that that class of individual, that class of people does exist why are the people who have lost every, who don't have anything Stanford could offer them, why, why are some of them happy? And why are the people who got everything Stanford could offer them, why are some of them anxious and depressed and sad? If you're not asking yourself those questions, regardless of where you are in your spiritual journey, you're irresponsibly attending Stanford. You really are. And Jesus says this in Matthew 16. He says, What good will it be if you gain the entire world and lose your soul? We have to deal with that. And the answer lies in the heart. It lies in much more important questions than how did you do in CS 106A or B. It lies in the questions of what is love? Can I be loved? Can I be someone full of love? Does God love me? What is forgiveness? Can I be accepted? Even someone like me. What does it mean to have full life? How do I be happy? What do I do with the sad things I can't stop? What do I do with the things that have been done to me? Is there justice? What do I do with my failures? Is it safe to be known? If you're not wrestling with those questions, you are not dealing with the heart. And if the heart is not healthy, there is no health. In RUF, we wrestle through these questions in the context of Scripture and in the context of a community of friends. And we believe that Jesus is the heart of these answers. And we're reading John because John is a great book for people all across the spiritual spectrum. Whether you're really convinced of things, whether you're kind of sure or unsure, or you're really skeptical. St. Augustine said this about John, It's shallow enough that a child can't drown in it, but deep enough for an an elephant to swim in. It has this incredible complexity and simplicity and speaks to all of our hearts. But we're reading it for the same reason that John wrote it. He says this in chapter 20, verse 30. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, the book of John is written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. We are all life seekers. That's why we're here. We're seeking life, not just at RUF, but wherever we choose to be. We came to that place because we were looking for life. And life is not found by honing your technical skills. Full life is when your heart is full. And as, Jesus, as John begins to tell us the story of Jesus so that we can believe in Him and have full life, the first thing he decides is important for us to know is Jesus is God and God became man. He's saying, you know what? If we're going to talk about having full hearts for you to have full life in Jesus, verse 1 through 18 says, here are the first two facts to establish. Jesus is God and God became man. When John opens up, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. John knows what he's doing with this phrase. He's evoking Genesis language. If you're familiar with Scripture, you know Genesis begins with, in the beginning God. And what John is doing is he's evoking that imagery from Genesis because he's saying, this person I'm calling Word was with God from the, beginning, from the very beginning. That at the act of creation, this, this person I'm calling Word wasn't created. He was the Creator. 
And you might actually remember, if you're familiar with the Genesis story, that it's precisely God's Word that creates. Remember, He speaks and things come into being. The creation story is God speaking words in order to create. And John is saying something that at first it seems like this is a boring theological truth that doesn't change my life. But John thinks it's the first thing that he's got to establish, that Jesus is the Word of God. That Jesus is the Word of God. That means He is the self-expression of God. He is God's way of disclosing Himself to this world. Our words are who we are. If you and I text back and forth, we interact with each other's words. When we interact with each other's words, are we interacting with each other? Yes. Jesus is God's earthly expression of Himself. And the passage closes with no one has ever seen God. One of those frustrating truths, right? Where is God? I want to see Him. And John says, Jesus has made God known. Now what do we do with that? Why is that important? It's for this reason. If you want to know what God is like, examine the life of Jesus. And that seems obvious, but it's actually, that's a pretty difficult challenge. Because this is what we generally think God is. Practically, functionally, day to day, this is how a lot of us think God acts in this world. We think He's basically a frustratingly inept wish granter. Right? We like the idea of God, some of us do, but we find that day in and day out, although we at times like try to work hard at making Him happy and being Christian-y and all that kind of stuff, He just doesn't seem to show up and do the things we wish He would do. So a lot of us Christians, if you identify that way, we're confused because He's not fixing certain circumstances I wish He fixed. And to be honest, we've tried and it's frustrating. So we don't want to say we're disappointed because we know that's not a Christian thing to say. But the reality is our spiritual life is kind of constantly waning and becoming more and more empty. We find ourselves more and more distant. And it's partially a result of the fact that we think God is kind of a cosmic wish granter and He's not very good at that. He's not fixing what I want Him to fix. He's aloof from my situation. On the other hand, if you don't identify as a Christian, you just kind of feel rightly skeptical. You're like, yeah, y'all. Do you realize that's who you worship? A frustratingly inept wish granter? And the reason why we have both of those frustrations is because whether or not we know it, we've actually preconceived notions about how we thought God should be. And He keeps failing to meet those expectations. And what's ironic is that at a time in our culture, and especially in this specific place where we live, not just Stanford, but kind of Northern California, we place a huge value on an individual's right to self-expression, don't we? That is like the chief right now. Of all beings, if we're going to give everyone the right to freely express themselves, which is a good thing, of all beings, shouldn't we first and foremost ask, who does God tell us who He is? That means if you believe in the importance of self-expression, you will never use the phrase, I just think God, fill in the blank. Or I just feel like God, fill in the blank. And instead, what you'll do is you'll read the story of Jesus where God says, if you want to know what I'm like, if you want to give me freedom of self-expression, don't imagine me the way you want me to be. Read the life of Jesus. That's who I am. And it's often the case that Christians embrace a version of God that endorses their lifestyle and their personality and their preferences. And it's equally often the case that a lot of non-Christians dismiss God because they have a caricature of who He is. Right? We want Him to be a certain way. 
If we're a Christian, we want Him to be a certain way so we won't be challenged by Him. And, and if you're not a Christian, you may want Him to be a certain way so that it's easy to dismiss Him. And of course, what's interesting is in verse 10 and 11, John says, When He came into the world, the world didn't recognize Him. And He even came to His own people, the religious people, and they didn't recognize Him in verse 11. When you deal with Jesus, part of what John is saying, at first you won't recognize Him because He's not who you thought God would be. So you have to ask yourself this question. We all do. Who do we think God was? Was I willing to let Him express Himself? For instance, what does He do with the things you take to Him? Right? We're frustrated that He doesn't fix the situations we take to Him. Well, here's what He does. And we're frustrated by this because we want Him to be different than who He is. But if you explore for very long, you realize the wisdom of His love. When we take things to Him, He takes our felt needs and He goes down to the heart needs. And so we take to Him, I'm not succeeding at the level I envisioned or my friends are succeeding or that I need to. And you take that to Jesus and He doesn't help you get what you want. He actually says to you, do you know you're not the abundance of your possessions or achievements? Do you expect to have, He says to you, do you expect to have full life by setting your heart on these things, He goes to our hearts. And He challenges our hearts. He's not just about giving you the grades you want. We come to Him, life is too hard, it's too much, I can't even do this anymore. And He says, come to me. Because you know what? My yoke is light. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. We're a Christian, you identify as a Christian, you're like, I'm a Christian, but I don't want to change. Then Jesus has strong words to us. He says, I'm the vine and you're the branches. And if you're not bearing fruit, you're not vitally connected to me. There's no such thing as being vitally connected to Jesus and not beginning to be transformed by His love. Maybe you come to Him as a Christian and you're like, I'm better than and I need to get away from certain kinds of really bad people that I can't associate with. And Jesus says, I have come to save sinners. And in Luke 5.32, He says, not the righteous, not the righteous, but the sinners I have come for. You know what Jesus says? He says, there's one class of individual that is not eligible for my grace. It's the people who think they are better than everyone else. We come to Him thinking, I'm I'm not good enough to be a Christian. Then in two weeks, you're going to see Jesus have a conversation with a prostitute. And you'll find out God's not who you thought He was. Jesus has come to show us the heart of God. And in coming, He answers the the second important question. How can I then trust that God is good? In verse 9, says this of, this of the Word of Jesus. The true light of the world was coming into the world, and He was in the world. Verse 14, He became human flesh and dwelt among us. And get this, John says, We have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. And right here again, what John is doing is he's evoking Old Testament imagery about the glory of God. If you read the Old Testament, there are these people, there are these encounters with God's presence where there's things like fire and smoke and people are overwhelmed. And a lot of times when Old Testament writers are talking about those encounters, they talk about it's so overwhelming they want to die. That's the glory of God they're encountering. And John says, this Jesus, he's actually the perfect embodiment of the glory of God. And Jesus didn't glow, and he didn't have halo, and he didn't have wings, and there was no choir music kind of accompanying all his sermons or anything like that. And in fact, in Isaiah, the prophet tells us that one of the things about Jesus is he'll be very plain 
in appearance. He will not stand out in the way he looks. But his life is the glory of God. And this is John's second point, and it's the beginning of answering that question, is God good? Can I trust that He's good? And to that question, John is saying, well, God became man. That's what you need to know. The answer to the question of, is God good, begins with, did you know He became man? Now, why is that the answer to the question of, how can I know God is good? And you have to think about it this way. If God is a creator and He loves His creation... If we believe God is love, as the Bible teaches us, He's told us, how would you express, expect a creator to express His love toward a creation? And at first, we think, maybe in more sophisticated words, but we think, well, by giving us the things we want. And of course, when that's our kind of first expression of like, well, if God is going to love His creation, the main thing you do is you give me what I want. And that, that's why we evaluate Him all the time according to that standard. He's not good, and I can't trust Him anymore because I haven't gotten what I wanted. And by, by, by defining His love for us, by giving us everything we want, we're actually defining Him as a bad, distant parent, right? That's what guilty, distant parents do. For children that they wish they loved better, what do they do? They just give them everything they want. Right? I can't connect with you and display affection with you So I'll buy you stuff. Now, if God loved us and His chief enjoyment and our chief enjoyment as humanity is to know His love, to experience it, actually feel loved by God, then the way He would express that love is by connection, by being in relationship with Him. If the purpose is that we enjoy His love and He enjoy loving us in connection, how would a Creator connect with the creation He loves? And the answer, that's actually answered really well. This is an illustration from Tim Keller. He borrows from the writer Dorothy Sayers. Dorothy Sayers is one of the first women to graduate from Oxford. She wrote mystery stories about a character named Lord Peter Whimsey. And at one point in the series, Lord Peter Whimsey has grown quite lonely And a new character shows up in the series named Harriet Vane. She gets to know Lord Peter. They work on a few mysteries together. They fall in love. They get married. They have children. And Harriet Vane is one of the first women to graduate from Oxford. This new character in a fictional series, right? And she becomes a writer of detective fiction. So in Dorothy Dorothy Sayers' fiction series about this detective, this new woman comes in and loves it. Because how does a creator express its love to a creation? By writing himself into the story. How can a creator have a relationship with creation? By writing himself into the story. And I don't think you can reasonably argue that God is love and His purpose is to meaningfully love us and be drawn to love Him unless God would write Himself into the story. How does a character connect with an author? The author comes into the story. And there's a lot of religions, and there's a lot of sentimentality out there that will say God is love. Those are three words we hear. But only Christianity posits that the first and foremost necessary act that demonstrates that God is love, and without this act you cannot argue that He's love or loves His creation in any way, is that God became man. No other religion posits that God became man. And I don't think there's any way to argue God is love other than arguing that God became man. 
the first two facts that Jesus establishes that Jesus is God and God became man. In every other religion, we go to God. We perform to gain acceptance. Whether your religion is materialism or Stanford success or the approval of others or fitness or athletic success, you have to perform to be rewarded. You extend yourself. You cross the gap. And you can never be sure if you're loved or accepted because it's based on your ability to please the tenets of your religion, always seeking to please the gods. And your heart will wither. The love of God is the life of Jesus. God coming for us, coming into this world, instead of us going to try to please God. More questions to ask yourself to process this. How have you answered the question, how do I know God is love? How do I know that He loves me? How can I be sure? How have you answered that in the past? And I find that the way I often answer it is like an immature child. An immature child says to a parent, you don't love me because you haven't bought me an iPad. Not speaking autobiographically here, necessarily. But, (laughs) taking some liberalities. Don't want to... But that's what an immature child says to a parent. We all said it as children. You don't love me because you haven't given me, today, the weapon of choice, the iPad. Right? And we say that not knowing that what actually fills our heart way more than an iPad is a parent's willingness to get on the floor and play Legos with us. Do you wish now that your parents had bought you more iPads or that your parents had gotten on the floor and played Legos more often with you? You see, we've been actually evaluating God's goodness the wrong way the whole time. And that's the reason we're frustrated with Him. Because we actually don't even know how to tell that we're loved. Our ability to understand that we're loved is broken. And He's still patient. And like a good parent who plays Legos all day, but is still battered with iPad requests, He's still kind. So however you've answered in the past, how can I know God loves me? How can I know? How can I be sure? You need to answer it now, beginning with, well, He became man. And that's the only way you can be sure of God's love. Because if you only ever imagine God as an idea that you pray to in order to get stuff, you're going to get frustrated and walk away eventually, or you'll just fake being a Christian the rest of your life. The first step in beginning to experience God's love is you contemplating what's called the incarnation, God becoming man. Because at the end of the day, there's only three different ways we can think about Jesus and think about God. Either A, there's just no God, so nothing matters, love and full hearts are nothing more than chemical reactions for promoting our species. Option B, God, there is a God, but He has not come into the world so he has no desire to connect with his people. We can never be sure that he loves him, uh, that he loves us, and he's just kind of observing his ant hill from afar. Screw that, God. That's a waste of time. Or thirdly, God came into this world because he loves it, and because he loves you. Answer that question of how can I know God is love? How can I know that he loves me? How can I be sure with? Because he, made man, because he became man. Because that is the only way you'll ever be sure of his love. And that's the only way you'll actually ever have the life you want. The Bible calls that life fullness, or life everlasting, or becoming children of God. And it's only available if you're willing to let God do business with your heart. 
if you let Jesus expose your heart. And that's hard. Because when Jesus does business with our hearts, when He says the summary of God's law, He says this is what has to be at the center of your heart. The summary of God's law is love God and love your neighbor. And when we start contemplating that, we learn that our sin is actually, all it is is it's self-obsession. That we were called to give ourselves to God and to others. And the world and all of our relationships are broken because all of us, corporately together, all we do is think about ourselves. And even when we do good things, we're still thinking about ourselves. And one reason Jesus is called light in this passage is because what light does is it exposes. Will you let Jesus expose your heart as He tells you about who He is? But secondly, will you let Him forgive you? Some of us are too afraid to feel guilt, so we won't let God expose us. Some of us can also be addicted to guilt, and we won't let the healing words of forgiveness wash over us. What happens in the life of Jesus over the course of all the Gospels is that He's going to go to the cross and He's going to pay the price for our creation-destroying and self-destroying selfish sin. His love extends beyond simply coming near and coming into the world. And it goes also to bearing what we can't bear. He goes to the cross because forgiveness is when the forgiver pays the price because we couldn't pay it on our own. Because we couldn't rid ourselves of our own debt. So let Him expose your heart. But here's where to forgiveness. See what great price He paid for you because He loves you. He doesn't begrudge you this, His forgiveness. Let your heart open to the possibility of forgiveness and also the possibility that God may even forgive people that you really don't think deserve it. Let Him expose your heart. Let Jesus forgive you. Thirdly, let Him shape your heart. And what you're going to find is this impossible list Paul draws out called the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is the organic product in your life of the Spirit of God touching your heart. It's possible. And you'll find that the fruit of the Spirit is the life you always wanted but couldn't get. And the first fruit of the Spirit is love. You know what? If you win at Stanford and you don't have the ability to love, life is worthless and hollow and empty. And there are people who will tell you that from personal experience. Second fruit of the Spirit is joy. Having the perfectly manicured body and social life without joy is worthless. Peace. Embodying perfect social academic achievement hybrid that we're all aiming for and not having peace is worthless. These fruits of the Spirit, they're matters of the heart. Nothing in Silicon Valley, nothing at Stanford, nothing at a party, nothing in your diet, no CrossFit can give you these things. That's for me, that's personal application. (laughs) All of these things are the product of knowing that you're loved. And the biblical word, there's a beautiful biblical word, a Hebrew word called chesed, and that's a word for covenantally loved. We need to let our definition of God's love for us be a little bit different than probably what we normally define love. That means it's a love that cannot be reversed or repealed. The grace of God, when you read the life of Jesus and truly understand it, it heals and fills our hearts because from Jesus we receive grace upon grace. Really short, two practical things you can do. What do I do to get in on this? Jesus is not here now, right? Well, God came into the world, but He's not here now. Are His words here now? 
When you deal with someone's words, are you dealing with that person? Can I be away from Elizabeth and read the letters that she's written me over the year and read stories of her love to me and be transformed by the spirit of her word touching my heart and fall more in love with her? Absolutely. When we're apart, I have letters I read and they warm my heart toward her. To know you are loved, we have to be in and around God's word to us. Because His Spirit testifies to our hearts through His Word. We should expect to experience very little sense of being loved by God if we're not constantly listening to and reading His Word of love. So we need to be in and around the Word. Secondly, the community of God is called to embody His love to one another. The church is called the body of Christ because it's His intention that as we're beginning to be filled by His love, we begin to exude His love to others, to one another. We need each other to be the love of Christ to each other. And if you're new, our hope and what our aim, what we're working toward in RUF all the time is to be this messy, loving community. You'll be frustrated because we all get frustrated because love is messy. The Bible testifies to that, doesn't it? So, we'll have announcements if you meant Join a small group. Do a fall getaway. Even if it's not RUF, I don't care if it's another church or another student group. You've got to be with God's people. And putting that off any longer is just putting off growing in an experience of God's love. RUF is here to love one another and to love the campus because Jesus has loved us. And that's what we're going to talk about the rest of this quarter. Let's pray.